If you're like me, you might hear estate planning and go, ugh, gross. You might think to yourself, I'm not sure why I'd bother with that. Estate planning is only for the uber rich. Tallgrass begs to differ. Tallgrass founding attorneys Laurel and Riley think everyone should have an estate plan. They know estate planning seems untouchable to a lot of folks, like something you have to do inside a stuffy law firm of Stuffy McLawyer Pants Esquire. But I promise you, Tallgrass is nothing like that. For one, they work out of their home so their clients can feel at home. They obsess, because they're nerds, over making clients feel like they belong and are supposed to be there. Also, their kids might make an appearance. They will take time to answer all of your questions, even the uncomfortable ones. They will work relentlessly to make sure your plan's exactly what you need to feel secure and at peace. So if you've been putting off planning for what's going to happen after you've gone, it's time for you to give Tallgrass a call at 918-770-8940 and start your plan today. Or visit their website at tallgrassestateplanning.com and schedule a free initial consultation. For free! It's right there on the website. And of course, there's more, because this is a podcast ad. If you tell them you're a Pot for Good listener, they're going to take 25% off their service fees. Just tell them Pot for Good sent you. Stop thinking estate planning isn't for you and give Tallgrass a call today at 918-770-8940 or on their website, which I'm not going to read out to you again. It's in our show notes. Thank you, Tallgrass. Welcome to another episode of Pod for Good, a podcast where we learn from those doing good in Tulsa, why they care, what we can do, and most importantly, what you can do. Pod for Good is produced and edited by Random Productions, which is me, and can be found anywhere you get your podcasts. I'm your chief philanthropod, Jesse Ulrich, and sadly, my vice admiral philanthropod, Chris Miller, could not record the intro with me. The first time in Pod for Good history. So the streak starts again at one. Luckily, Chris was with me when we spoke with our guest, doctor, but don't call him doctor, Stephen Galoob. Professor Stephen is the Chapman Professor of Law at the University of Tulsa College of Law. We discussed the state of criminal justice reform in Oklahoma, his work with Project Commutation, and why all of us need to update our pop culture references. Enjoy our conversation, which starts in medias rest, talking about the movie Wayne's World. Something else we learned from Wayne's World. I know. How right? to count people in. Well, at least we all have the same references, so that's, that's a good true. start. It's, it's rare. It's honestly rare in our conversations that we can make the exact like, same. As a Wayne's teacher, I, I understand that I need to update my references. Like, I... <laughs> Like Big Lebowski was 23 years ago, oh, and you know many of my students were two years old when it came out. And I mean, I think about like if I had to understand references to a movie when I was two years old that wasn't Superman or Empire Strikes Back, I don't know if I could do it. Yeah, I don't even yeah. know what the references would be now. Oh, like Mean Girls. Like like the other day, there were two oh, people yeah. in my class who were remotely who were participating remotely, and they were both wearing pink shirts in the same room. <laughs> And I was like, oh, you know, we wear pink was on it Wednesday. Was it Wednesday? <laughs> it was a Wednesday, yeah. I, I wondered uh, a couple of weeks ago at work, I saw two women wearing like pink, you know, one, one was like a sort of a pink power suit. The other was, you know, just like a pink blouse. And it was a Wednesday. I, I feel like I should have asked, but I thought it might be creepy. But I was like, ah, it, it was Wednesday. So I was like, I wonder if they were going for that or if it was purely coincidental. But Mean Girls is like 15 years old. True, but like it's also been made into a musical, oh, yeah. so I feel like you know that recycles it. Memes, uh, memes, memes, memes. Yeah, we are very excited to have Doctor uh, Stephen Galoob, JD, on the podcast today. Let me ask you: uh, are, are you allowed to put Esquire at the end of your name? Another thing. Yeah, I, 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 I never did that one time when I was a practicing lawyer. So I don't really like to be called Doctor either. Although I understand. I mean, it's kind of a form of privilege. You know, white male privilege to say like, don't call me doctor, call me Steven. So I, I stopped <laughs> saying that kind of bullshit. But, um, well, listen, I only have a master's degree. Explicit tag, you know, two minutes. Yeah. Ahead, yeah. I can't, I can't, I uh, listen, I would love to call myself master Jesse, but that's yeah. wrong on a multitude <laughs> of levels now. So, um, wow. just uncle, uncle Jesse, I think. Yeah. There you go. Uh, yeah. Another, another, th- another topical like, reference. I think, for us. Like a, I think that's like a 35 year old reference right there. So, <laughs> Right. But that's what I don't really want to. <laughs> I don't want to shoehorn it to uh, into class. Who's the worst professor at TU, and why is it Tyler Moore? 
So Tyler and I, Tyler and I drive the same car. Which, um, I got it from the same kind of car, which I got from my mother-in-law. And so I think about it as like a mom car. And um, it is weird to see the smartest person that I know driving a mom car. It's like if you see the toughest person that you know, and they're carrying like a very little dog. It's like what? This doesn't make yeah. any sense. That's awesome, Tyler. Yeah, uh, for if he's listening, which I know he's not. Again, one of the smartest people I've ever met. Converted it to binary, and he's uploading it like the Matrix. It's like, again, like Chris and I have talked about this, incredibly smart guy, hung out with nerds, but wasn't really a nerd. Like, he didn't care Mm. about nerd things. It was fascinating. I'm like- Like the pop culture, video game, that sort of side of nerd culture. The uh, only, apparently the very useful, um, I'm going to get to- uh, be a witness in front of Congress type of nerd stuff. So, so yeah, what what is, is and Patton Oswald's typology is he a dork then and not a nerd? I oh, don't actually know. Is I, that... He's definitely a dork. I mean, again, look at the car he drives. Yeah, I know so, that. <laughs> mm-hmm. But Stephen, so you do a lot of work around both. The, you teach the law, and you also do a lot of work around criminal justice reform. And Oklahoma is a state rife with the needs of criminal justice reform. And I feel like before the pandemic, we were. There was a lot of energy and a lot of discussions going on around Oklahoma and prisons and the amount of people we put in prison. And then the pandemic sort of steamrolled everything. And I know that prisons themselves had lots of issues during this pandemic. Considering where we are now, what is, give us sort of an update on what's happening with criminal justice reform here in Oklahoma. You know, as a red state, there's a limit to the kinds of reforms that are, um, that are feasible. It's not only are we read at the state level, but unlike places like Texas or, uh, well, Georgia. Texas, uh, yeah, Georgia too. Yeah. They're, um, a little bit in Missouri, they're kind of blue in the cities and maybe not so much in the counties, but the cities. And so their district attorneys tend to follow a particular kind of playbook that's sometimes called progressive prosecution. I think the people who formulate the playbook like to call it 21st century prosecution. It's adopting a, a set of tactics and strategies that the, the goal is to, to result in less punishment and less crime. That's the slogan that they have. And so our district attorneys here, by and large, do not adopt that playbook. There are some exceptions, but, you know, so... On the back end, it's actually pretty promising that the state has closed three entire facilities. I'm pretty sure that they closed the first one around the right right before the pandemic uh, hit, and the other two they've closed during the pandemic, and that's really remarkable. You know, we still incarcerate at a, about 150 percent of the or 50 percent higher than the national average. And the national average is by far the worst in the world. So, uh, but we're not the worst performing state anymore. We're actually the third worst performing state in terms of the percentage mm-hmm. of people who are incarcerated. So that it's really hopeful. We were number one before Governor Stitt took over, and so that I think that that that's uh, a green shoot, as they say. In terms of the the legislative, I mean, in terms of where criminal justice reform is legislatively. I think that there's there was some a flurry of activity in between 2016 and 2018, where the legislature was changing laws and was uh, defelonizing a lot of not just drug crimes to try to. Uh, there was a as those of you who are here will remember there was a big state question in 2016 called State Question 780 that made simple possession of any controlled dangerous substance a misdemeanor rather than a felony. It was. Uh, one of the most, the boldest changes to drug-related criminal law in the country. And it also made changes to uh, property crime, making it harder to chart for prosecutors to charge felony property crimes for relatively low-level thefts and things like that. And so you can kind of see some of the effects of those those legislative changes. And and then there were a host of legislative changes around that, uh, in addition to state question, which was a popular referendum. And, you know, these days, I, I think there's, there's hope that there might be, there's a still a long, a, like, a long, long, long way to go, but legislatively. And then there's this problem, which I kind of alluded to earlier, which is you change the laws, but if you don't change the people who are enforcing them, or if you don't change the systems 
that are enforcing them, the law changes can be kind of blunted. I think I think you meant you talked about the state referendum, which was to release people who had been arrested for marijuana possession and whatnot charges after Oklahoma made medical marijuana legal. Yeah. Then, so the, the uh, state question 780, that, that wasn't what state question 780 did. It changed the law regarding what's called simple possession, sometimes or possession of controlled dangerous substances, I think the technical term. And simply possessing those substances, any of those substances was not a felony after 780. So 780 actually was passed before the medical marijuana legalization happened. But I think the other important thing to put it, so the one important thing, it, it applied to all controlled dangerous substances. So heroin, cocaine, uh, cannabis, uh, all of that. And then, but the important thing to, to say to Jesse's point is it did not apply retroactively. So anybody who was in prison for one of those crimes for a felony, and there are thousands of people in prison um, in the four years up before, before the, or the five years before the um, effective date of that law, about 20,000 people in Oklahoma prisons, uh, at least in part on one of those charges. Uh, it was by far the most commonly charged crime of, of people in prison. That doesn't mean they were in prison just for that, but they were in prison for that. But they were just kind of stuck there. Um, there was no attempt to, in the legislation based on what the drafter or of, of the state question, based on what the drafters decided to make it retroactive. And so there are still, I mean, even to this day, there are a lot of people in Oklahoma prisons for low-level drug and property crimes that if they were to be charged with those crimes today, they wouldn't actually be felonies. I think it's interesting because these big state questions, what the legislator does, that's what tends to get the most press, the most mm -hmm. focus. That's what people think about when they think of criminal justice reform. But as you said, the systems around it can blunt the changes, You know how judges um, choose to in interpret those changes, how district attorneys decide to what they charge and what they prosecute, even police officers, who they choose to arrest, whether they decide to ticket, bring somebody in, those things can have a more profound impact on criminal justice than the larger laws and changes that we tend to focus on. Absolutely. I'll give you an example. Um, I actually was just testifying before the legislature about this exact question uh, last week. So in the year after state question 780, uh, went into effect. So it did. It, it was passed in November 2016. It didn't go into effect until June uh, of 2017. So what, what it did was it eliminated the crime that, of simple possession of controlled dangerous substance as a felony. It could only be a misdemeanor. There were still a lot of people who were charged with that crime as a felony in that year, but they were charged based on conduct that happened before June 2017. And that year afterwards, overall crime in Oklahoma was flat. Basically, I mean, almost too, like, disturbingly so. Like, there were probably like six more reported felonies in 2018 and 2017. And the number of possession of controlled dangerous substance crimes, felony and misdemeanor, was significantly lower in 2018 than 2017. But what was higher is basically the next crime up the food chain, which is possession uh, of a controlled dangerous substance with intent to distribute. That was up about 15%. So... You can use your imagination, and I think that the data is actually pretty clear about what happened. What happened is prosecutors took these, you know, same, I'm just going to say I was here. There was not a, an epidemic of drug dealing, but not drug using between 2018 and 2017. Whatever conditions happened in 2017 were also conditions that happened in 2018. Let's just get that out of the way. <laughs> so basically what you can imagine, the story, a prosecutor sees a charge. They want to charge this person with a felony. Previously, they would have charged them with felony simple possession. That's not an option. So what do they do? They just charge them with possession with intent to distribute. That to me, and you know, it was no secret that in the run-up to state question 780, the prosecutors as a whole were very much against defelonizing simple possession. There was an organized campaign by law enforcement against that, that rule, and it still passed. So, you know, to me, what that says is that there's a limit to how much you can do criminal justice reform just by changing the laws. Even if you're making the most significant change to any state's drug law in the country, that you can basically, a prosecutor or prosecutor's office that, that wants to, or even a specific line prosecutor who wants to, can 
undo massive legislative reforms. This has come up on the podcast many, many times, but is the system broken or is it working exactly the way it was intended to? I guess I'm going to respond to your deep question by asking a deeper question Ooh, or all right. by another deep question, which is which system, which system are you talking about? I guess the <laughs> American criminal justice system. Right. And and that that is like a a widespread system, obviously. And for a lot of people, they live most of their lives within that system in some way or another. If we actually go broader, right, and say like, okay, think about all the places that the criminal justice system touches, right? It touches schools, it touches public health, it touches mental health, um, it touches economics. I mean, a lot of our unemployment rate is attributable to products of the criminal legal system. Then um, we can say, look, we've consigned people to a particularly dysfunctional system, the criminal legal system. And, you know, maybe that was a tool of social control. There are really great books about the sort of racial domination origins of pretty much every component of the criminal legal system, um, from the way we elect prosecutors to the creation of public defenders offices to the development of the war on drugs. I mean, it's it, there's a lot to read. But if we're actually talking about all of the institutions that the criminal justice system touches, or I would call it the criminal legal system to make this point, then it's pretty clear. I mean, I think that unless we can say that taken together, all those are just systems, then then there, there are deep problems in the, in the criminal legal system. Even if you see it as, you know, in a kind of Foucauldian sense, like this is a, a tool of social control, or if you see it in a Michelle Alexander sense, this is a tool of racial uh, domination. Even on those terms, um, it's it's still not working really for, for anybody. Well, and, uh, along those lines, I mean, this is another thing we were kind of chatting a little bit about before we started, but the use of uh, imposed legal fees, especially to people who have felonies after they've gotten out, can't get certain jobs and then have onerous fees hanging over their head. And they really can never break out of the, they, they're pretty much involved in the court system for the rest of their life because of that. I mean, it's really two issues. So forgive me for rambling here a little bit, but how do you um, approach the stigma of a felony so that people can get jobs? And how do you approach the issue of courts applying these fees to people who can never pay them? Yeah. Didn't we, didn't America outlaw debtors prisons at one <laughs> point? And <laughs> Aren't we somehow recreating those without calling them those? Yeah, no, that that is the uh, prevailing metaphor in, in this area of the law. It, it turns out, you know, there's relatively recent Supreme Court precedent that says that you can't send somebody to, to prison just because they can't pay their fines and fees. You can't send somebody, you can't jail somebody just because they can't pay their fines and fees. That's been sort of interpreted in the years since then to mean, well, you have to give them a hearing, but we don't even do that. And there's, there's law, you know, Supreme Court precedent under the United States Constitution. There's ample legal authority under the Oklahoma Rules of Criminal Procedure that says not only can courts do this, but they should. The problem, as my friend Ryan Gensler from uh, Open Justice Oklahoma points out, is that in Oklahoma, we are a low tax state, which means that it's really difficult to raise operating revenues through taxes. So what you have is a system, and I'll say here, the specifically the criminal legal system, where an increasing percentage of its revenue comes from what are called legal financial obligations, the kinds of fines, fees, costs, and, and other obligations that arise out of involvement with the criminal legal system. And that is a real problem. I mean, over the last 10 years, I think this set might be a year or two old, so I probably should say 12 years the amount of legal financial obligations in Oklahoma has increased about 300%. But the amount of that money that's been collected is flat. It's essentially flat. Now, what that tells me is that, to use an Oklahoma phrase, we are trying to bleed a bunch of turnips. We are trying to take money to run the system off of people who can't afford it because Continental Drilling CEO doesn't want to pay a little more in, in taxes. 
So that's a real problem. And that does kind of implicate the more nefarious point that Jesse was saying um, earlier about how if the, the people involved in the system have a financial incentive to perpetuate the system's operation as a way of paying their salaries, then you have a pathological situation. Those prisons you talked about earlier that Oklahoma was able to shut down, were those state prisons or private prisons? They were all state facilities, um, but either one or two of them, I forget which two or what the number is, was actually a private facility that we contracted with. There's a great uh, law professor at Fordham named uh, John Pfaff, who has written a really uh, remarkable book about criminal law and criminal law reform called Locked In. And one of Pfaff's big contributions is to not only sort of highlight something that law professors have been talking about for quite a while, which is the central role of prosecutors in maintaining mass incarceration, how it's remarkable that crime can drop and incarceration rates can basically increase. And how the hell does that work? And Pfaff says, well, it actually works through the charging decisions that prosecutors make. But one of the things that Pfaff also does, he is my kind of person because he likes to offend the people who tend to agree with him, is that liberals tend to think that, or progressives tend to think that, they tend to overrepresent the amount of people in jails and prisons for drug crimes. Now, in Oklahoma, that overrepresentation is not entirely true, but a larger percentage of people in Oklahoma prisons than you, uh, the sort of progressives among us might believe, are in for seriously violent crimes. And so one of fast points is you can't really address, you can't get us down to the historical rate of imprisonment that we have in this country sort of before 1968 without doing something to address people who have been convicted of committing violent crimes. And they tend to think that private prisons are a much bigger problem than they actually are. And, you know, for me, (laughs) the scandal should be not private prisons because the alternative is a public prison. And that's not really, I mean, there are bureaucratic problems there. The scandal should be the ways that the criminal legal system and different people within it suck resources away from the people who are involved with it. So here's an example. If you know people who have been in prison and have ever tried to make a phone call to them, it is astronomically expensive to do that. The owner of the Detroit Pistons, for instance, his main source of financial you know, sort of sustenance is a company that facilitates these calls between prisons and people who are justice involved and and people on the outside. Now, you can imagine it's really important if you're going to try to set up your life after you get out of prison to have like contact with people on the outside. You can also imagine you don't want people doing drug trafficking or sex trafficking or organizing violent crimes, you know, sort of from within prisons. So there are like legitimate security concerns. It's just there's a kind of profiteering aspect of it too. I wish people hated the prison telephone industry as much as they hate private prisons <laughs> personally. You know, again, like we are all of an age when we can remember when you got charged extra for making long distance phone calls, uh, but that's not a world we live in anymore. And so the fact that this system still exists without anyone sort of questioning it or bringing it up is kind of, is, is pretty sad because Like, yes, you're right. There are safety concerns. On the other hand, like, isn't it better for someone in prison to still feel ties to family members, to their community, if they could connect with them without it costing a lot of money, which they don't have because they are in prison? And and to add to that, I mean, this is the way that the criminal legal system solves problems is by criminalizing them. It's actually a a felony uh, punishable by up to five years on a first offense and sort of up to Uh, life on a second or third offense to bring contraband into prisons. One of the things that counts as contraband is a cell phone. And so there are people who are serving lots of time in Oklahoma prisons. We don't know exactly how many and exactly how much time because there's not really a good source of data on this, but or publicly available source of data on this. But for bringing cell phones into prison, maybe for good reasons, maybe for not so good reasons. But, you know, this is an example of the way that the kind of perpetuation of the system happens that what's initially like a legitimate security concern, we've got to make sure that the that people aren't threatening other people's lives inside or outside the facility through phones, more of this like sort of capitalist tinge into like, hey, let's make a billion dollars uh, charging people to talk to their children. And then uh, if people try to sneak in cell phones, 
um, let's throw them, uh, let's give them more time or put them in um, segregated solitary confinement if we find a cell phone or a cell phone charger near them. And I think it it comes back to sort of like, what is the fundamental purpose of the criminal justice system? Is it to rehabilitate criminals or people who are justice involved so they can re-enter society, become productive members, or is it to segregate undesirables and keep them separate from the rest of society and then sort of forget about them? And it feels like generally this the system is designed to do the latter rather than the former. I mean- uh, Yeah, let, let me pull a Jesse uh, and say, <laughs> um, there's actually, you know, those aren't the only two options. We're, we might talk about in a second, some work that I've done uh, with helping people who are justice involved get their sentences commuted. I would estimate that 90, I mean, I didn't do like a scientific poll on this, that 95% of the people that we helped get commutations for had some combination of substance use disorder, significant traumatic experience or childhood adversity and undiagnosed mental health issues. And so there's a sense in which these people, a a lot of the people who are involved in the criminal legal system, and and let let me be clear, there are lots of people, including people who might be listening to this podcast or like on this podcast who have two or three of those things and are not committing violent crimes or are not engaging in you know sort of repeated violations of criminal law. But a lot of the people in the criminal legal system do have those things. And if and this is kind of goes back to the point I was making earlier to Jesse, if you take the criminal legal system in isolation and you say, okay, given what we have here, is the system operating okay? That actually undersells the degree of injustice here because it takes off the table, okay, why is it that people can make it throughout their lives without getting adequate you know, traumatic care or getting reliable mental health care that doesn't replicate the worst features of the criminal legal system uh, in Oklahoma? Why is it that you can uh, have a substance use disorder and instead of getting treatment, you get taken to, to, to jail or to prison? And so, like I said, it makes it kind of a bummer to teach to teach criminal law because, and I actually kind of talk about this in my classes. I'm like, there is a lot more out there than what we're going to be able to do. I'm training you to be, as one of my um, colleagues at a, uh, recently wrote in an essay, penal bureaucrats. And there's a lot more out there that you could be doing, but <laughs> you've chosen to be here tonight. Yeah. So since you opened the door to the work you've done in commutation, can you talk a little bit about the the project and and some of the successes of it? Yeah, no, it's um, it's the most amazing thing that I've ever been involved with, and this is the kind of feature of this of how Kafka esque this thing is. It's not anywhere near like good enough. As we mentioned earlier, State Question Seven Eighty it was passed in two thousand sixteen, and it didn't apply to people who were already in prison or had already been sentenced. Um, it only applied prospectively, so to people who were charged based on events that happened after its effective date. That meant that there are a lot of people, like a lot, a lot of people in prison for very long sentences because in Oklahoma up to that time, a second or third drug drug offense, even if it's simple possession, could be punished by up to life imprisonment. We're, we're serving a lot of time for very for crimes that the people of Oklahoma had said should not be felonies. So what happened is a program officer from George Kaiser Family Foundation called me and said, hey, we're going to try to put together this effort to do commutation and clemency as a way of figuring out you know, whether you know, we can actually get people out of prison based on 780. I had no idea. I mean, I knew there was a thing called commutation or clemency, but I had no idea what that meant. And summer was starting and I had writing to do and I had a lot of stuff at TU. I was going to be the president of the faculty senate. And if I had been um, thinking wisely, I would have been like, you know, thanks. I, I appreciate your um, your concern, but I don't really have the bandwidth to do this. Uh, but lacking that gene in my, um, in my repertoire, I said, okay. And I was able to convince enough of our students who already had several, <laughs> who already had summer jobs. Uh, this was like in May. So like school was pretty much out to, to go do work on this project. Uh, and the project was housed and sort of nominally supervised by attorneys at the Tulsa Public Defender's Office. And at first we focused on, on people who had 
like what you might think of like as the most compelling cases, people who had very long prison sentences for drug possession crimes that were now misdemeanors and had no serious misconducts while they were in prison. And we got ex like tremendous cooperation from the Department of Corrections and they were able to provide us with data. And we did a lot of outreach and facilities to try to identify the people who would be good candidates. It turns out most of the people that we identified the first time around were women and mainly because it's a lot harder to avoid having serious misconduct charges as a male prisoner than a female prisoner, not because the men didn't have you know, just as compelling a legal case. And we, so we worked with the Oklahoma Pardon and Parole Board, which at that time basically was not, I mean, they, the title is the Pardon and Parole Board. Commutation is neither pardoning nor paroling. So they did not consider this a significant part of their job, but we worked with them to set up a process that allowed us to make the case for these, these folks. And in the summer of 2017, we made the case and the case, or actually it was summer of 2018, the case was um, ultimately, most of the applications were passed through by the Pardon and Parole Board. I think the year before they had, out of all the commutation applications that had been submitted, which was about 2000, they had granted maybe like 15 and we got 30 and like one fell swoop. And in granting ours, they wound up granting like a lot of other people who had similar cases because we were, in effect, we were educating some of them about like, hey, these laws have actually changed, which is not something that there was really a mechanism to do. And in December of 2018, Governor Fallon, you know, her term had ended in her last days of office. She, she, the Pardon and Parole Board recommended, I think about, about 30 people representing about 450 or maybe 500 years of imprisonment. And um, she granted commutations to all of them. We were able to work with private um, funders to like give them like transportation home and help them get back on their feet. And there was a signing ceremony at the uh, state capitol and Governor Fallon cried, which, you know, it was a really remarkable day and a life-changing day for me. And then there's like, wait a minute, we got 30 people out. And to get down to the national average, there was about, I think, 39,000 people in Oklahoma prisons or under Department of Corrections control at that time. We would have had to, to get down to the national average, which again is like the worst in the country. This is the worst in the world. We probably have to get about 13,000 people out of prison. And so it's like, whoa, okay. <laughs> I think I said 20, did I say 39 or 29? 29,000, we have to get about 13,000 people out. So like we have some work to do. And so we started doing the work. and. Legislatively, a lot of the people who were arguing or you know advocating for criminal legal reform were able to pitch the use of commutation as a mechanism for decarceration. And I think it actually came up in the gubernatorial debate, and Governor Stitt said that he would be in favor of it. There was some concern that he was just saying that because his opponent had also said that. And it turns out when he got into office, he was really serious about it. They've done a lot legislatively and through the executive branch to, to get people out of prison for drug and property crimes. And there are still a lot of people who have, who are serving only sentences now that would be misdemeanors if they have been charged with those same crimes now, but it's undeniable the work that we've, we've done that, that has been done. And it's also, like I said, undeniable that there's still like a very long way to go. For our listeners out there and for Chris and I, what can we as non-lawyers do? The most important thing that anybody who's not a lawyer can do is to treat district attorneys races as seriously as you would treat like the presidential race. Ask hard questions, demand accountability of prosecutors. The thing that I've seen through my through my research and my work in this in, in this field is that we have a big problem in the state, but the problem is actually a lot worse in some places than in other places. Tulsa County and the folks at the public defender's office hate it when I say this, but Tulsa County, the outcomes in Tulsa County are way better than the outcomes of any racially, uh, any other per capita, they're way better than the outcomes in any other racially diverse county in Oklahoma. If Oklahoma County had the outcomes that Tulsa County did, our state would be probably like 10 slots lower in terms of incarceration. It is impossible to overstate. I testified, like I said before, the House of Representatives last week. I did not say this then. I will say it to you and your audience. Um, it is impossible to overstate 
how much of the deep problems that we have in the state are driven by Oklahoma County and the prosecutor's office there. And it's just a matter of data. It's not like, I don't know those people. I'm from Oklahoma County or around there, but I don't have a vendetta against anybody there. But if you just measure after measure, Oklahoma County not only ranks sort of at the bottom of the state on an absolute basis, but at the bot- like near the bottom of the state in a per capita basis. So you mentioned elections for um, district attorneys. What about elections for judges? Is that as impactful or, yeah, I mean, how, how impactful is that to so, justice so reform? It's really, the, the work of judges is extremely important, but it's limited. The n- number nationally, nobody really knows, but you know the, the number that people throw around is 95. I'd estimate in Oklahoma, it's 98 or 99% of criminal cases are resolved via plea bargain. And most of those are resolved without a recommendation on behalf of the prosecutor. And so judges have a lot of leeway in terms of how they can sentence folks. And I think that if we could create data about sentencing that, that was sort of sufficiently fine-grained that you could make comparisons, it would be a lot easier to hold judges accountable when they decide, you know, this person needs to serve 15 years as opposed to two or three. I mean, the, the thing about it is that prisons come out of the state budget. So it's essentially costless for county level officials or district court level officials to prescribe prison. If the same people who were prescribing prison had to pay for it or, you know, were under the supervision of the person who had to pay for it, we would use prison a lot less. And one of the meaningful reforms that some prosecutor's offices do is make their prosecutors calculate the expected costs of imprisonment based on sentencing ranges and and sentencing recommendations and and plea bargains, right? So if you say this person deserves three years in prison for stealing a set of golf clubs, that's different than saying this person deserves a hundred and, or actually that probably like $75,000 worth of prison for stealing a set of golf clubs. And like the mandatory minimums for certain crimes, that those are that's just for federal, right? That's not Yeah. So Oklahoma, many crimes, many crimes have mandatory minimums in Oklahoma. That's not the problem. Um, I mean it is a problem. It would be great if we eliminated it. So I'll put it this way. Appreciating how mandatory minimums work kind of shows you how important it is, the prosecutorial role in this whole thing. Let's say you have like a judge who was appointed by Obama or Carter or or somebody, right, who um, wants to be lenient. But within the federal system, it's very difficult for district court level judges to sentence. It used to be impossible. Now it's just difficult for them to sentence under the under the minimum. So what prosecutors can do is essentially force the hand of judges by charging a particular set of facts in a certain way to trigger particular minimums as opposed to like another way. And what you have a lot and systems where there's relatively adequate resources devoted to public defense is you have what's called charge bargaining in addition to plea bargaining. So your plea bargaining is your, you know, your bargaining over how should we resolve this case? Charge bargaining is sort of similar to that, which you're like, should we resolve it in this way or that way? I'll give you an example. In Oklahoma, as I said before, there's possession of controlled dangerous substance, which is a misdemeanor, and there's possession with intent to distribute. We don't really have any standards for determining what possession with intent to distribute is. And so almost any case of possession, simple possession, you could probably charge as possession with intent to distribute. But there are other crimes that you can charge um, if you were like an enterprising prosecutor. You could charge possession of controlled dangerous substance without a tax stamp, which they do a lot in some counties. That is essentially a way of felonizing what's misdemeanor conduct. You could charge use of a communications device in a drug transaction. If they find drugs in your house and you have a ring, or if you, if they search your cell phone and find that there's like pictures of drugs or text messages or something like that, that's another felony. So what you might do if you had a mandatory minimum system, like with a system with high mandatory minimums, is you might expect defense attorneys to bargain away those charges. Say like, drop these three charges, I'll plead to this one, and here's the recommendation. That's by and large not what happens in Oklahoma, but that's actually not great because what happens is that the prosecutors have such a resource advantage um, that there's not really that kind of active bargaining that goes on in our criminal legal system. And so what happens is basically the charge that is charged, for the most part, is the charge that you're sentenced on. If the minimum is not that high, but the range is like two to life, as opposed to two to seven, what we see is that judges in deciding what to sentence 
are, and juries especially, are influenced by the fact that the top range is life rather than the top range is seven. So if the top range is life and you sentence somebody to eight, that's actually cutting them a pretty good deal. But if the top range is seven and you sentence somebody to seven, what you're saying is this is the worst possible offender or this is the worst possible version of a person who committed this particular offense. So are there statistics out there that show what percentage of the max and minimum that that people tend to get um, sentenced? Yeah. So it turns out for a long time there wasn't. And then maybe two years ago, the Oklahoma Pardon and Parole Board issued statistics that are publicly available. You can find them on their website. Uh, I think you, at least you could. I'm not sure if they're still up because they're under new management, that listed the amount of people who are in Department of Corrections custody based on charges. So it was about 30,000 people and about 120,000 sentences. And then the median mode and modal and maximum sentences, I think not maximum, but like sentences for those particular crimes or for those particular offenses. This is just the people who are in Department of Corrections custody. So we don't really know that number in terms of the charging, but we have some dated and preliminary data about the uh, the people who are actually in the prison system. And the, the Department of Corrections has this data. It's just like not their, it's not really their job and nor really should it be to do this kind of, you know, public good service work. So one so of the it, things that, you know, you might have is like a database that just shows what the criminal justice or the criminal legal outcomes for particular district attorney's you know office are, and that way, when the person comes up for re-election and they say like, "I'm for," I served in the Marines and I'm for you know prosecuting crimes except when they're done by insurrectionists and then not prosecuting them, um, or you know unless the crime is not wearing a mask, um, for example, right? Yeah, just a, <laughs> hypothetical. A hypothetical. And then you know, so they, uh, you know, you could. Theoretically, if you had local news sources or social media or blogging or something, I don't know, um, you could say like, no, it turns out this person, their office puts a lot of people in prison for sort of trumped up charges. One of the things we found in our researching is that the Oklahoma legislature made basically defelonized all credit card related felonies in 2016. And between 2017 and 2019, there were 150 different examples of people serving time on credit card related felonies. Now, none of these were actually crimes. And so, I mean, when I presented this to the legislature, they're like, well, why didn't the district, or why didn't the defense attorneys and the judges catch this? And I'm like, I don't know. It beats me. Um, but, you know, if, if prosecutors are public servants, then I feel like there is a sort of special duty on them to understand how the law works and not to push it in the way that you might push it as a private attorney. And uh, so part of what I wanna start doing going forward is trying to work, getting a lot of people out of prison is a noble and it's a lifetime accomplishment. But the more significant challenge is to change the parts of the system that contribute to those outcomes. And that's sort of the next phase of the work that I'm trying to do. I would really like to start working with prosecutors. I, I, by the way, I don't, I have lots of former students and lots of friends who are prosecutors. I don't think that prosecutors, people who devote their careers or the first parts of their career to public service are like nefarious people. I think that there are a lot of times problems with the incentives that they have within their offices, problems with the way they're trained. And then problems, like I said earlier, with the fact that the kind of questions that they are being tasked with considering are not the whole part, right? That they're not being asked to consider the overall consequences of the way of the decisions that they make. And that's just a general bureaucratic problem. The person at the DMV who decides not to, you know, take your application at 459 might actually be causing you a lot of problems, but what they're not doing is staying till 501. So when you have bureaucratic problems like that, I tend to think maybe this is like the liberal, the sort of Clintonian technocratic, you know, uh, fixed part of me, that if you can change the structure of those institutions, then you might be able to address those problems. You mentioned that something that people can do is is take their uh, district attorney um, races very seriously. But but what else can people do? Are there organizations they can support? Or is there work they can do? Like what what are... Uh, maybe a couple of tangible steps that people can take. Yeah, like to help websites with, with websites where they yeah. can follow the stuff, like Facebook yeah. pages. Yeah. Anything. One of the one of the 
things that I've seen throughout this, my work in this, in the criminal legal system is that there's this kind of Kafka-esque quality to it. You can think that you are improving it, but you're actually making it, you're actually legitimizing it. And so there's a kind of complicity to participating in deeply unjust systems. There was a, a, a Nazi judge named Conrad Morgan, who was a crusader, a righteous crusader, um, because when the Nazi soldiers would round up Jews for the concentration camps and take the gold fillings out of their teeth, some of the soldiers would pocket a few of the fillings for themselves. And Conrad Morgan, this drove him crazy, the fact that this was happening. So he set about prosecuting uh, the Nazi soldiers who stole the gold teeth of the Jewish people who were being sent to the camps. <laughs> now that is, I mean, <laughs> it's difficult to engage with a system that's that unjust and try to make it a little bit better without yourself committing or perpetuating a certain kind of unjustness. I do not think that the criminal legal system in Oklahoma is like as bad as the system for executing Jewish people and and others in Nazi Germany, but it ain't great. So there's a sense in which the best reforms, the, the reforms that are most likely to have the broadest impact are going to be reforms that challenge the paradigm and that try to change it. So one of the great organizations that's available in Tulsa, and it has a limited impact because it is extremely resource intensive to do this kind of work, is um, Still She Rises. So Still She Rises follows a model that's sometimes called comprehensive criminal defense, which deals with not only the criminal legal challenges that their, their clients face, but the social service challenges and the mental health challenges and the, the public, the, the health challenges. It is difficult, uh, and I've seen this kind of case many times, to bring a very sick child to the ER when you are involved in the criminal legal system and not have to worry about losing custody of them, losing and being charged criminally with the condition that they're in. And it helps to have an advocate. The problem is that the system that we have, the criminal legal system that we have, gives people rights to counsel only when and to the extent that they are charged with felonies. So any other aspect of the criminal legal system that is not felony, so like misdemeanors, legal financial obligations, getting your conviction expunged, restoring your voting rights or your gun rights, these are all things that basically you have to do on your own. Now, one recommendation would be, and this is kind of one of the things that I think I'm hoping to try to work on in the coming years, is to work within the system to make those processes function more effectively without the need to have lawyers involved. But another thing that you could do, and this is what Still She Rises does, they represent their clients in those like non-felony capacities. They work exclusively, as far as I know, within North Tulsa. They are based on a model out of New York called the Bronx Defenders that has been demonstrated in empirical studies to generate um, better outcomes long-term than traditional criminal advocacy. And so I think that, that that's that's a great model. And then like, there's a way of like doing that, you know, that is like at the same time, like working within the system, but not accepting the limitations of the system as like the things that are, that are real. Two other great organizations that I've uh, been involved with, Women in Recovery is a national model on how to do diversion. One of the problems there is that, um, that you might, you know, sort of glass half full look at it, is that um, the kinds of people who are able to be selected into Women in Recovery are if you adopt that kind of stringent criteria for selection, then you're going to miss a lot of people, like for instance, men and people of color who have criminal legal involvement that would that you know might be a deal breaker for organizations like that. And so while women recovery is remarkable in its track record of success, and it is like similarly life-changing to go to one of the graduation ceremonies that they have, um, there's not a lot of options like that for men. And for, you know, people who I think have in many cases been abandoned by the system long prior to their involvement in the criminal legal system. 
So um, one example of an organization that, that does really good work in that space is um, First Step Men's Diversion Program. My friend, Judge Bill Kello, is uh, a founder of that organization. And is, he said he's cycling off his involvement because he's he believes in nonprofit governance best practices. But um, finding organizations like that that are doing things on a, a sort of local scale is, I think, extremely beneficial. So and then so now real quickly, how do you cheer yourself up at night after all of this? Other, other than kids in the hall, brain candy. I was going to say Gleaminex. <laughs> yeah. Um, I remember the time that <laughs> that was lovely. <laughs> uh, so um, how do I cheer myself up at night? I love the work that I do with students. I love the research and the writing that I do, most of which is not super empirical or policy oriented. I love Tulsa and I love being here because I chose to be here. My wife and I are both from Oklahoma and we lived away for a long time and we chose to come back. And I think for me, having that time away from here made me appreciate the things about this place that are great. And it also gave me perspective to be able to address or begin to address the, the challenges that we face as a community that might not be as apparent if you hadn't lived away from here. I would say, you know, just, I mean, like this kind of sounds like sincere or whatever, but like the possibility of making this place a little more just and the thinking about the ways, all the people's lives who that would affect, um, that keeps me going in this, in this field. And there are complications and there are barriers and there are things that just seem really obvious to me that don't seem obvious to other people. But, you know, my job as a teacher is to help people understand things that they might not understand, but I you know, have a, a better understanding of. And so I just kind of try to take that, that aspect to other things I'm doing. Well, uh, Stephen, thank you so much for joining us and talking about these issues with us. This is a lot of our episodes have sort of touched these issues and in, in the Venn diagram of injustice here in Oklahoma, but it was, it was, it was good to get sort of an education on the broader system that we don't necessarily get to see and all the different ways it can screw people. Yeah, so. I mean, I, I I'd love to come back and talk to you more about specific things that we're working on, or um, specific opportunities that are available in Tulsa, or for you know students who wanna who wanna do this kind of work. But I'm glad you guys are here and, and doing this, and thanks for having me on. Yeah, we'll definitely have you yeah, on a second you. time before we have Tyler more on. So <laughs> yeah, definitely get two in the bag first. Um, so Stephen, thank you again, and. To our listeners, we're going to try to put as much information as we can in the show notes and links to all those books and all those great organizations. And Still She Rises has been on my guest list idea for quite some time. I just need to reach out to them because they're doing great work and I, w- I just want to know more about it. So thank you. Thank you again. That was lovely. Thank you all for listening to our conversation with Stephen. Please make sure to follow Pod for Good on Facebook and Instagram and the Twitter. And of course, please subscribe and leave us a review if you can, unless you're going to leave us a three-star review and not say anything, because then I will hate you forever. As always, get done, Tulsa. And please, if you haven't gotten vaccinated yet, why are you waiting? Good day. Good day.